You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Let's find a Bible open to um, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we find ourselves in a Reformation 500 series. The series is called Reformation 500. Tagline for this is Pulse Tenebris Lux. Latin for after darkness, light, which really summarizes all that took place in the really beauty and the glory of the Reformation. The purpose of this series is to remember and reinforce the significance, the impact, and the theology that burst forth from the Reformation. Again, this month marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. It is right to honor and remember it. Now, as the Reformation began to take root, the Roman church warned that this separation from the one true church could not survive. The Roman church said that this movement would dissolve and divide into countless factions if the authority of the Pope were to be rejected. Now, we know that there have been many abuses in the church over the centuries, and why? Because it's made up of sinners like you and Me, and we also know we're not hiding at all within the Reformation, as within every era of the church, there's always error in every era. There are things we regret. There are things done with the wrong intentions, the wrong motives. There are things done plainly in sin. The Reformation is no um, exception to this. So we're saying right after that, we know there's messy parts of the Reformation. However, To see the Reformation in its purity and what came from it is the unleashing of the true gospel that resulted in astounding and beautiful fruit literally across this world. Mark Dever, he he says this, he says, the biblical gospel brought by Jesus Christ, taught by Paul, and taught by countless teachers since then, since the Reformation among them, Luther, Zungi, and Calvin is still taught around this world by men and women who have no organized link with any earthly bishop in Rome or elsewhere. He says, for, in- for instance, an Assembly of God missionary in the Philippines, an Anglican minister in Sydney or Tanzania, a Baptist pastor in Brazil, a Lutheran minister in St. Louis, a Presbyterian minister in Scotland, a Korean missionary in Stockholm, and an interdenominational pastor in Dubai. They may never have met. They are not part of an earthly organization, and yet they are all united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the power of what took place from the Reformation. Again, even the next couple of days, again, over 100 churches represented, 1,000 plus pastors and leaders coming together, united in one purpose, one person, Jesus Christ, and the glory of his gospel. And this is just it. The gospel of the one true Savior, the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. I want us to remember our series outline to, as we are summarizing the doctrinal truths of the Reformation, of course, found in the famous five solas. Again, this is our outline for our series. We're not trying to be clever or creative here. We're taking what was boiled down as to the immense 
and most important truths that came again from the Reformation. And today we find ourselves in solo Christo or solus Christus, Christ alone. I want you to see this. All the solas are connected to one another and none more so than solo Christo. Think about it. The scriptures ultimately reveal who? Christ. The whole reason the book is written is to reveal the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. All of the Bible ultimately points to solo Christo. Think of solo gratia, grace alone. Grace is the gift given by Christ. Christ comes to give the gift of grace. There is no grace apart from Christ. And then, of course, sola fide, faith alone. The object of our faith is Christ. You place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Sola fide, absolutely, totally, unreservedly connected to solo Cristo. And against sola Deo gloria, solo Cristo, in Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ himself is the personification of soli deo gloria. And so this, of course, is all seen within solo Christo as well. So this becomes then, as many commentators and theologians say correctly, solo Christo then is the linchpin of the solas. The scripture reveals the message, and now we find ourselves face to face with arguably the most important truth you could ever No, the most important person you could ever meet. Solo Cristo, when it comes down to its most simple definition, is this, that salvation is found in the work of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone can provide the salvation we need from sin, death, and the grasp of Satan meaning no merit of man can do this, no merit of saints, and certainly no place of purgatory could ever add or contribute to salvation in Jesus Christ. No, 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 it's, it's only, it's only solo Christo. Now, I know some of you right now, you're jealous of me trying to practice all this Latin up here. I know some of you want your turn as well, and you can take an opportunity maybe to say solo Cristo. In fact, you can take the opportunity, you can say any of the five solas. If you want to take a moment, just turn to your neighbor and practice your Latin, go ahead. You can do that right now, just take a moment. You can try one of your favorites. It's fun, isn't it? Solo Cristo. You guys are really enjoying that, wow, wow. All right, that's enough, that's enough. That's enough Latin, yeah. All right, solo Christo, and for that truth, now we turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And just before we read the text, I just want to jump into our first point on solo Christo. It's this, ready? Point number one, Christ alone, the work is finished. Christ alone, the work is finished. Look now, Hebrews 10, verse 11. Notice the work is finished. This is so beautiful. This is so profound. This is so awesome. Verse 11, chapter 10 of Hebrews. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins, notice he sat down at the right hand of God. Amen. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Notice verse 14, for a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews at all, you know how many times the author has stated this truth that we just read in one form or another over and over again. I just want you to maybe, I'm going to show you a couple of verses just from one chapter back. Look at Hebrews 9 verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12. He, Christ, entered once for all. In my Bible, that is underlined. It's actually circled entirely in red pen. It just, I want to see. I want to see these truths that are, are so essential to everything we live for. He entered once for all into the holy places. Notice, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 14, chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 26, chapter 9. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But notice, but as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One more, chapter 10, verse 10. The verse immediately preceding our passage today. 10, verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, notice, once for all. What we find is this truth is repeated and restated with such intention. We must stop long enough and to consider the impact of why this is happening. Now, if you look at our verses in verses 11 to 13 specifically, notice the contrast between the priest and Christ. So let's study our Bible right now. Let's look at verses 11 and 12, what's the contrast between the priest and Christ? It's so exciting when we see this in our Bibles and we see it for ourselves. Notice, the priest standing daily, Christ sitting down forever. See that? Priest is standing daily, Christ sitting down. Now remember, there wasn't even a chair in the holy places within the tabernacle. Why was there not a chair for the priest to sit down on? Here's why. Because the work was never done. There is no true rest in the old covenant system. There's no true rest because the work is never completed. So the priest stood daily, it says here in our text, a reminder again of the imperfection of what they were doing. The blood of goats and calves cannot put away sin forever. So the priests stand daily and repeatedly offering sin because the work is never done. Kind of reminds me of parents, most likely moms making lunches for their kids, standing up and the work is never done. Moms, dads making lunches, they never get to sit down, at least in my house, because the lunches seemingly never, ever end. 
because the work is never done. No time to rest. No time to sit. But notice in our beautiful passage here, our beautiful passage points out once again in verse 12, the contrast, but when Christ offered himself, notice, notice, he sat down. I mean, that phrase right there, that is incredibly beautiful theology. Why would he sit down? Consider the power of this imagery, Christ sitting down. When Christ is sitting down, what does it mean? It means it is finished. It means the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom. It means the payment has been made. He sat down because the work was done. Now please allow me at this point to pound the gospel into your heart. When Jesus died, sin was paid, he sits down. And because Jesus Christ then rests, we as believers, we also have rest in Christ all because of Christ. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 11, then no wonder he says, come to me all who are labor, who labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Notice he continues, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, loved ones, Jesus here is not promising physical rest from lacking sleep as much as many of us would want that. He's promising here spiritual rest for the guilt-driven. He's promising spiritual rest for those plagued by sin. Now, please listen and listen carefully. It is Jesus, or it is finished. Jesus sat down. Sin has been paid in full. So we learn here then, we stop trying to earn favor with God because that's already been done in his son. We stop believing the lies of Satan, of disapproval and disappointment. Why? Because Jesus sat down. We stopped acting like we can add to the cross because Jesus died the perfect death, and therefore you cannot add to perfection. So right here, right now, those truly saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, be released from trying harder. Be released from trying harder, but listen, but also be released to love deeper and love further. This is what this should result in. When you see all that Christ has done, he paid for our sin, he made that payment, he sat down, all my guilt taken away, but now my love must come forth for him. Because Jesus rests, those washed in the blood can also rest. The irony here is because Jesus sat down, We as believers now are called to stand up. But why? To tell others of the rest that we now have in Christ. Do you get it? He pays for all our sin. Now we stand up and we declare and proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. It's our greatest motivation for why we love. It's why we preach. It's why we share It's why we pursue the Lord, because we are so overwhelmed with this love for us that we desire that any and all would know the same. This all comes from solo Cristo. It all comes from the understanding of the importance of the theology of Christ alone and what he did. Now look at verses 14 to 18 now, okay? Look at this. For by a, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Notice, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Somebody say, praise the Lord. That is awesome, right? And notice verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, so important, there is no longer any offering for sin. How clear is God's word there? Because of what Christ did, there's no longer any need for any more payment to be made because payment has been made in full. Look back at verse 14. Notice two things about this verse. Those who are perfected, what does that mean? Um, freed from sin and guilt. Those who are perfected are being sanctified. Sanctified means those who are truly saved. If you are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are becoming into the image of Jesus Christ. You can't truly be justified and not see yourself be sanctified. If you are God's child, you start to look like God's son. It's impossible for the one thing to happen without the other. The verse is saying right here, a single offering for all time. Those he's perfected, he is now sanctifying and the blood of Jesus washes you. You are cleansed perfectly forever. Secondly, verse 14, it means there to be saved. To be saved does not mean that you are now perfect. As in, I'm no longer a sinner. We know that. We know that to be true. But rather, you've been free perfectly, set free perfectly from the penalty of sin. And now you have, we have our heart set on perfection or heaven or glorification. So again, see the point of theology here. When you've been washed by the blood, you are cleansed forever. Let's do a little more theology here, okay? You can still grieve the Holy Spirit within your temple, but the Holy Spirit can never be removed from your temple, ever. Those truly saved will remain saved in Jesus Christ. So once in Christ, secure in Christ, Romans 8, that's why there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you ever walk around saying that when you're in the face of temptation, accusations by the evil one, and you just say out loud, there's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's no, con there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's therefore now no condemnation. Even as you say it, the truth starts to renew your mind and change your heart and direct your life into the place it's supposed to go. All because of the single offering that Jesus Christ made and those who believe and receive salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Now, that background in the context of the Reformation. At the center of the Catholic Church service was called the Mass. The moment you walked into a church building during the Reformation and beyond and today... Even the architecture of the church, it would be very obvious what the whole Catholic church was about. It was at the mass that it was celebrated on the altar. The altar, the key part of the church. And think, why is it called an altar? Because on an altar, you sacrifice things. So the Catholic church taught that in the mass, Christ's body would be sacrificed afresh to God. So every time the Mass was observed, they believed they were repeating Christ's bloody sacrifice on the cross. 
So therefore, in each mass, Christ would be re-offered to God as an atoning sacrifice dealing with the sin of the people that were there. So this teaching was called and is still called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is where the bread and wine are believed to literally turn into the body and blood of Christ. Now what's fascinating to me here is that the transformation would occur when the priest, at least in the context of the Reformation, when the priest would say the Latin phrase, hoc est corpus muum, English, this is my body. At the moment he said that, the church bells would ring and the priest would raise the bread. Now the people would normally only get to eat of the bread once a year and they would never get to drink the cup. See, why would they never get to drink the cup? Well, what if some peasant took the cup and spilled the blood of Christ on the floor? Because they believed it was literally Christ's blood. So they weren't worthy of holding the cup. So then how are the people benefited from the mass? Just by looking at the raised cup from the priest, they were taught they received grace by putting their eyes on the cup that the priest held holding the literal blood of Jesus Christ after the priest said the words, hoc es corpus muum. And because you believed that when you looked at the cup that was being raised, that you received grace, what would happen is the people would run from one service to the next service to the next service because they thought they were adding up all the grace and earning points with God. No wonder church attendance was so high, right? No, but it's true. You literally went to church thinking, if I don't show up, I won't be saved. If I don't show up, I don't get grace. If I don't put my eyes on the cup, if I don't see the priest hold the bread, I am in big, big trouble with God because I'm missing out on the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus Christ to deal with my sin. This was the context that the Reformation found themselves within. This is also fascinating to me. The service was in Latin, always. And the people didn't understand a word. But apparently, neither did most of the clergy. So what would happen is the priest would memorize the service by rote. They just memorized the word, but they wouldn't even know what it really meant. And over time then, the parishioners in the mass service, instead of hearing uh, hoc es corpus muum, hoc es corpus muum, this is the body, eventually over time, well, let's just actually look at the screen here for a second. This is, okay, so here's the Latin phrase. Hoc es corpus muum. Hoc es, hoc es corpus muum. Over time, what they began to hear is this. Put this on. Hocus pocus. <laughs> now, I looked into this pretty, pretty deeply because I was like, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You can look into it too, okay? But my research has unfolded. It's a very, very good chance that this is where this phrase comes from, okay? There are people who will argue and the other, and the other but it's amazing to say, and just, even, just it makes so much sense. Hocus, but the, but the priest is just mumbling, hocus pocus, hocus pocus, all of a sudden, what do you say, hocus pocus? And he says, hocus pocus, and instantly that's when the bread and the wine turn literally into the blood and body of Jesus Christ. So begins the magic and the superstition which plagued the Roman Catholic Church. Isn't that mind-blowing? I'm just like, wow. 
hocus pocus. Hocus pocus. And then look at, look at, it turned into the literal body and blood of Jesus. So, so they taught. You know, Luther, he had the chance to visit Rome. This is before he was born again. He visited Rome in 1510. And of course, Rome was the spiritual height of everything. And so people were paying all this money to get to masses because they believed they were paying money that they would intercede for their loved ones that were dead and get them out of purgatory and somehow being saved. So this massive hysteria of everyone going to the masses, there's so many people paying money for the masses that the priests were doing double time on them, and they were talking so fast it couldn't be understood. And he even says that you had two priests at the same altar simultaneously giving the mass at the same time to try to get the people through. It just became just like became a show of religion. It's just ridiculous. And by the way, this started to sow some seeds of doubt in Luther's mind. He was watching this, and he's like, "Really?" But consider the teaching of the Roman church at the time of the Reformation in light of Scripture. See, this is where sola scriptura is essential. This is where we have to turn to our final authority being God's word. How does the teaching that you are re-sacrificing the body and blood of Jesus Christ ongoing with Hebrews chapter 10? Well, of course, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. Hebrews chapter 10. When Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. There's no more sacrificing of Christ, his body and blood. According to the Bible, that's theologically impossible. It's the precise reason that Jesus on the cross in John's gospel said, it is finished. The accounting term for paid in full. It's done. One sacrifice for all time, never to be made again. Solo Christo, praise God. The worth, the, 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 the payment, the sufficiency found in Jesus Christ alone. So think about it. If Christ needs to be sacrificed again, here's the, here's the worst part. How do we know if we're truly forgiven? Because what, what about my sin yesterday? What about my sin today? I need, I need Christ to die again in a sense to make sure that I'm covered. But the problem is I keep sinning. So then how do I know? And enter, enter the control of the church at the time of the Reformation through guilt and shame and condemnation and religion, really. Just a brutal sense of religion. You know, this is massive in the context of the Reformation. The incredible insecurity that the people had through their own guilt that the Catholic theology produced. You literally had people walking around and they were not sure at all. They were not worthy of, 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 of forgiveness. They were wretched in their sin and the wrath of God was coming upon them and it just put them in this place of tremendous fear, insecurity, and condemnation on a daily basis and the church just added to it. That's why Luther said, because of the righteousness of God, without the knowledge of the mercy and grace and love of God, Luther said he hated this God. He could never add up. He hated, so terrified to die. Because he could never find himself at the place of acceptance with this righteous and angry God. So no wonder then, when you find the gospel for the first time, and you truly hear about the inexhaustible grace, the waves of mercy that will never, never run dry, 
and the complete understanding that Jesus Christ alone was sufficient in paying for every single sin you will ever commit, and you are guaranteed forever and ever to reign with him and his inheritance. I mean, that's just a little bit of joy time. That's a little bit of a gospel explosion. Clap for that. That's a great thing to clap for. Amen. And this is what took place within the context, again, of the Reformation. But what happened here, right? So the Catholic Church at the time of the Reformation, man, these doctrines are coming out now. They have to dig their heels in. They got to dig their heels on what they've been teaching because they're starting to lose control. This is what the Council of Trent said on this issue of the Mass, okay? It said this in 1545, okay, the mid-1500s, if anyone, this is the first canon, if anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God, or if anyone says that to be offered is nothing else than Christ is given us to eat. So what, what they're saying is here, if anyone says it's not truly Christ and not Christ himself is being offered in the mass, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed by the Pope. Okay? Now, this was, this was affirmed in the Council of the Trent in mid-1500s in response to the Reformation, but notice it was reaffirmed in the mid-1960s with Vatican II. That's not biblical. This is why this became such a big deal. And by the way, just a little side note here. The Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are additional books found in the Catholic Bible as opposed to the Bible we hold in our hands. Say, what's up with that? The Apocrypha was added at the Council of Trent, so well over a 1,000 years when the complete canon was confirmed in the church. It was added because the church needed to find extra books to support the unbiblical teachings that were being forwarded to the people. So that's why the Apocrypha exists, because they had to find places outside of the canon of Scripture to try to support the teachings that all of a sudden the reformers were like, that's not in the Bible, that's not in the Bible, that's not in the Bible. But we hold up sola scriptura, and then we rejoice in solo Christo, because again, verse 14, chapter 10 of Hebrews, for by a single offering he is perfected for all time. A single offering, loved ones, he is perfected for all time, for all time those who are being sanctified. Because of what Christ did, we don't have to do anything, listen, except believe. To believe in what Christ has done. This is why Luther said this on the screen for you. He said this, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. As long as we are here in this world, we have, we have to sin. We're not perfect yet. This life is not the dwelling place of righteousness, but as Peter says, we look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. It is enough that by the riches of God's glory we have come to know the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. No sin will separate us from the Lamb, even though we commit fornication and murder a thousand times a day. Do you think that the purchase price that was paid for, the redemption of our sins by so great a Lamb, is too small? See what he's saying? There's nothing. There's no one too far from the gospel. There's no one too evil. There's nothing we can do to somehow escape or out sin the payment that was made by Jesus Christ as solo Christo, as our sufficiency, as the Savior sent by God 
to die for us. No wonder then we love the hymn, It Is Well, and the verse that says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Now you like me, and you, just, you can look at your past, and you can just go, that was awful. It was awful. And even as you think about it, I like, right, think about some of the things that I did, and you're just, you shudder. It honestly makes me shudder. I'm so awful. Are you like me? You look at your present, and you see your heart, and you're like, it's so awful. And you know in the future, it will be the same. But then you see this. But the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. It's nailed to the cross, man. One time offering, payment made. It is finished. Once for all, for all time, and I bear it no more. Of course, of course this is the response. Of course, of course. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Solo Cristo, the work, it's finished, loved ones. It's finished. Point number two, Christ alone. Another mediator need not apply. Another mediator need not apply. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's not that far to your left in your Bible. Pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy chapter 2, just after 2 Thessalonians 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. One of the key foundational verses on Solo Cristo, of course. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. I do want you to be there. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God... Notice, there is one God, and there is one mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, during the time of the Reformation, the Roman church taught that the priest was mediator between God and man. The Roman church also taught that priests could grant forgiveness of sins. Hence, the confessional began. The practice of confessing your sins to a priest. And then he would absolve you or free you from this. So evidently, this elevated the role of priest beyond Scripture. And in some way, it diminished the role of Christ as sole mediator. So as part of the Reformation then, and hear this, as part of the Reformation the priest would become a pastor, a shepherd with the people, a teacher to the people, uh, with the people, now over and above, with leading, guiding, shepherding, loving, big distinction between priest and pastor. This is why Peter himself, who the Roman church says was the first pope, he says himself in 1 Peter 5, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. 
as a fellow elder. And we, we are thankful for the undeniable way Peter was used as a leader in God's church. One of the best, one of the strongest. So broken, so used. But in the end, even Peter, the best of men, are what? Men at best. The best of men are men at best. Do not put your trust in man. Put your trust in Jesus. And imitate those who imitate Christ, is what Paul says. Imitate me, Paul says, as I imitate Christ. Notice, there is one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So you see, for Christ to be our mediator, he, become, he comes between God and man. And this massive chasm of sin, Christ is the one who dies on the cross, therefore allowing man to now have access to God. What does he do as mediator that brings us together? It all happens on the cross. It's called the atonement. Let's just see what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. This is seen in four main ways. As our mediator, becoming between us and God, a just and holy God, a wretched and sinful human race. We deserve death and sin. See why the five solas are so essential? Because the starting point for us as human beings is we deserve to die because of our sin. That's why these were needed. We deserve God's wrath of our rejection and our rebellion against a holy God. We deserve this. We're dead without Jesus Christ. But look at the love of God in the midst of our predicament. We deserve death. Jesus is our substitution. He's our sacrifice. He, he, he dies in our place. He sacrifices himself for us. Crazy love. We deserve God's wrath rightly. Punishment for our sins. Jesus is our propitiation. He takes on God's wrath, the penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus takes on God's wrath again upon himself that we don't have to. Crazy love. Mediator. We were separated from God, but because of what Christ did in paying for our sins, we are now reconciled to God. Remember, when the, when the temple curtain is torn, man, now the entranceway to God is now open. In Christ, by grace, through faith. Five solas, awesome. And we were in bondage to sin. Sin owned us. Jesus bought us out of that. He paid for us. He redeemed us. That we are now, if we're saved in Christ, children of the adopted into God's family to the point we can now cry out to God, Abba, Father, are you kidding me? Crazy love. Solo Cristo, no one else, nothing else. No effort, no works, no religious game. Solo Cristo. Solo Cristo, the atonement, our mediator. So notice, no person comes to God through the church. No person comes to God through a priest. The only way a person comes to God is through Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is the context of the Reformation. This is the context of our day today. A couple of weeks ago, I found myself at a store in a conversation with one store employee. Mentioned I was a pastor. Basically ran away from me. 
all of a sudden I found myself kind of discouraged about that. Found myself in another conversation. And all of a sudden, it was like in a matter of seconds, we're talking about the gospel. And this woman was there, Catholic background. And to my delight and surprise, I find myself opening up my Bible on my phone and showing her verses that for by grace we are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's amazing. She says, she's, she's like, that's in the Bible? I said, look. Been to church, you know, off and on throughout her life. Never heard the gospel. Not, not like this. You mean it's not what I do? You mean, you mean it's, it's a gift? You mean I was quoting her verses, Titus, Ephesians, Romans. Again, that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. She's like, that's so weird. You know, I was, last time I was at church, I went to the church and I was confessing my sins to the priest and the priest was there and he said he was shaking because he was shaking over my sin. I was like, that still happens, huh? Wow, that's too bad. Because what's, what's not needed is some priest to be there saying, I'm shaking over your sin. What is needed is to say, Jesus Christ paid for every single sin you've ever committed. And if you place your faith and trust in him, then you too shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the solace. That's what happens. You know, who knows right now that some of you are here, some here right now, and you thought this is a game of religion. If I just be a good person, if I just do it, you'll never be good enough. You will never be good enough because not one sin gets into heaven. That's why we need Christ because he paid for every single sin. Do you see what's being offered to you right now? Every single sin you and I have ever committed paid on the cross by Jesus Christ alone and you can be absolutely perfectly forgiven by simply placing your faith in him and him alone for the forgiveness of sins and receive the grace of God again by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then your life begins to be lived for the glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is, it is. Is the greatest message of love you will ever hear. And you will not get to the end and say, but I did this and I didn't do that. And I, that, that, that will not work. It is not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is Jesus Christ is Lord. And Jesus Christ died for you and me. And we believe in him, put our faith in him, and declare him as Lord that we shall be saved. I seriously extend that to you today if you are in this place, that you would give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, even now. And say, Jesus, I believe in you. You died for my sins. Forgive me. Come live within me. I want eternal life. Please, Lord, I love you. This is what Jesus Christ did. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. My hope He's my light, he's my strength, he's my peace. He's my rock. He alone can be my comforter. He is my love. Solo Cristo. In Christ alone, he is God incarnate. He is the gift of God, he is the very gift of love. He was betrayed, he was tortured, he was crucified. He was my propitiation, he paid in full for my sin. Solo Cristo. In Christ alone, he is the resurrection and the life. He's the conqueror of death. He is the absolute and supreme victor. He is my redeemer, my reconciliation, my restoration. He ransomed me. Solo Cristo. In Christ alone. Oh, death, where is your sting? 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Jesus Christ becomes my destiny, my guarantee, and my glory. Solo Cristo, only, only in Christ alone. He is so worthy of our praise. There is no one even close to him. Let's pray, church. Let's pray. Tell Jesus how much you love him. Tell Jesus how thankful you are to him. That he was betrayed and tortured and died. That he bore God's wrath for you and me. That he said it is finished. All those words. Let's tell Jesus Christ how unworthy we are to be alive in him. And yet how thankful we are to be saved and adopted into the family of God. No greater truth, no more beautiful person. Solo Cristo. The sufficiency of God. Our eternal salvation, redemption, reconciliation, restoration. Thank you, Jesus.